Reading Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all of his associates, who are members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord appeared, opened the doors of the jail, and brought them out. Go stand the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, there was no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain, the temple guard, and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts, teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thetis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and he was killed, and about 400 men rallied to him. But when he was killed, his followers dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men." You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them to not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles let the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering, disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of God. Thanks, Tommy. So keep that passage open, Acts chapter 5. We're, it's, a, it's a heavy passage, it's intense, and it's pretty long. There's a lot in there, so we'll try our best to, to get through it today. Uh, for those of you I haven't met before, just to introduce myself, my name is Paul Joyle, and my wife Liz and I are uh, 
life group leaders here at The Journey, and we also serve full-time with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a nationwide campus ministry, along with uh, Dave, who gave the announcements today. He does that, too. And uh, from time to time, because this is such a supportive church, uh, we get to share updates on what's happening in our ministry, and we get up here and tell you some stories about the things that are happening on campus. And for the most part, we tend to major on the highlights and the encouraging things, the, the stuff that uh, is going well. So growth, new ministries happening on new campuses, people coming to faith in Jesus for the first time. And it's all true. And it's all very important that you hear that so you're encouraged to know that God is alive and active on college campuses these days. Uh, but today, to start off, I, I do want to open up to you a little bit about some of the things that are maybe a little bit harder and more challenging about our ministry as well. As you can guess, there's probably several things that can be challenging about doing Christian ministry on secular college campuses. Uh, one of them is that uh, just simply having a worldview that is centered on Jesus, that proclaims the gospel of Jesus, and that sort of looks to the Bible as an ultimate authority in our lives is sort of a minority view on campuses these days and has been for, for quite some time. Uh, but for the most part, there's always at least been a place at the table for us to have that view in the sort of pluralistic university atmosphere. Uh, and our student chapters, we have kind of groups of students we work with on campuses all over the country, and they're recognized as viable student organizations on campus. They have officers and constitutions and full standing in the, in the community. They can get funding from the university and reserve rooms, have access to space on campus to host events and whatnot. There's a place at the table for us. But recently, even that, our right to exist on campus has been challenged in more and more places. And that's not a totally new thing. That has happened a few times before. But in recent years, it's been happening more and more frequently across the country. And the sort of legal footing on which we stand has, has shifted a little bit in recent years. So there was a 2010 Supreme Court decision in a case called Martinez versus the Christian Legal Society. It didn't involve InterVarsity, it involved another campus group, but essentially the court ruled that universities may enforce, they don't have to, but they may enforce an all-comers policy that requires recognized student groups to be open to student members and leaders of any persuasion. And if you take that logic, you know, all the way to its full extent, like, really, I should be allowed to play on the women's basketball team, and Republicans should be able to be leaders in the socialist group on campus. It hasn't come to that. Uh, that kind of thing hasn't been, been happening, or, you know, men trying to join sororities and things like that. Uh, but in our case, um, it has had implications. So our, our groups are, are open to anyone. Our membership is open to anyone. Uh, anyone on campus is, is welcome to join our Bible studies and participate in our activities on campus. And we tend to draw a pretty wide spectrum of students uh, from varying faith backgrounds and, and the like. Uh, but we do have some standards for leadership in our groups. We, we ask that leaders sign a doctrinal basis. We ask that they subscribe to the authority of Scripture and, and do their best to at least submit their lifestyles to the authority of Scripture and, and live in, in, uh, in line with Christian ethics as best they can. Basically, to make sure that our Christian groups are led by Christian people. Uh, but at times, some folks have seen our leadership requirements and looked at them and said, hey, that's, that's discriminatory. That violates all-comers policy, and you shouldn't be allowed on campus. Uh, and again, that's not a new thing. That kind of thing has come up on campuses from time to time over, over the years. But in the last few years uh, since that decision, uh, our right to exist on campus has been challenged in over 40 places across the country, and really in all north, south, east, and west, you name it. And even in places where the, a full-on controversy or dispute hasn't broken out. There's that 
underlying sense we have that that could happen any time now, uh, or it could be coming soon. So we find ourselves spending a lot more time and energy than we used to talking about and dealing with what we call campus access issues, um, and it's stressful to be honest. It's a new source of stress that we haven't had to deal with as much before. But remember, we're also growing quite a bit at an unprecedented rate, really. So across the country, InterVarsity has grown in its number of student members actively involved. In the last five years, we've grown by 20 percent. And it's, we're growing actually in our little corner of southern and western New England. We're actually growing at a faster rate than that in recent years. And we're seeing a number of new, new chapters being planted and, and an increase in the number of students who are coming to faith in Jesus. So at the same time that there's this kind of increased opposition going on, there's a lot of growth and increased growth happening. And I just thought that would be an interesting sort of case study for us to have in the background today as we dive into Acts chapter 5, where we see both continued growth, explosive growth in the new church that's continuing to happen, and also as that's happening and as the power of God is sort of getting ramped up in society, so too the opposition level to that new movement is getting ramped up a little bit as well and taking on an added intensity. So we're going to dive into Acts chapter 5 that Tommy read for us. We're in week 9 right now, the series through the book of Acts uh, called The Christ Revolution, How the Gospel Changed the World and Can Do It Again. It's exciting. In just the first four chapters, it's been a wild ride as we see the early church explode out of the gate with incredible wonders and power of God, touching people's lives, people coming to Jesus in the thousands. It's explosive, it's exciting. At the same time, in chapter 4, the previous chapter, we saw the first signs of opposition rise up to this new movement. And in chapter 5 today, we're going to actually see a lot of the very same things, a lot of the same themes that we saw in chapter 4 repeated in chapter 5. We're going to notice there are actually some patterns that are developing. And so to, to kind of dive through this passage, uh, I'll, I'll name a few themes that we've seen before, uh, talk about where we've seen it before, where we now see it again in chapter 5, and what are some maybe new twists or new things that we see? Because in a lot of ways, we see the same old themes, but also with a, a new twist or a few new elements or an added level of scope or intensity. So we'll, we'll structure it that way and, and start from the beginning. So the first thing we see in the passage Tommy read for us today is more growth and more power. More power and more growth. More power of God being displayed among people and more growth in the early church. Already in the first four chapters of Acts, we've seen tons of God's power at work, and we've seen tons of growth, exponential growth, and here we see more. So first, we see more signs and wonders. This is language that we've already heard uh, if we've been here in the, in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the very beginning of this passage is actually an answer to the apostles' prayer in chapter 4. After they had been arrested for the first time and threatened not to talk about Jesus anymore, the apostles got together and they prayed with the community uh, they were part of and said, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So they asked for God to stretch out his hand and perform signs and wonders, and here you go. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And the way that Luke describes the miracles that are happening later on in verses 15 and 16, there are very close parallels to Jesus' own ministry when he was on earth. We see people coming from far and wide, bringing all their sick, all the people who were tormented by evil spirits, trying just to get near, and all of them were healed. That's some of the exact same language that's used to describe Jesus' ministry on earth. 
And it makes sense because all of the point of these signs and wonders was to point to Jesus and to validate the apostles' message about Jesus. Pastor Tom's talked about that a fair amount. This wasn't just a magic show they were putting on or some kind of kind social service to make people feel better, although it did make people feel better. But there's a particular way that God performed miracles at this time through the apostles in order to validate their message, which was all about Jesus. So all these signs and wonders are pointing to Jesus and they're being poured out in a, in a greater and greater magnitude here, it seems. And all the while, uh, our second point, this, the community, a community is continuing to form and the church is growing a developing reputation. It's got a growing reputation among the people. Verse 13 says, they, meaning the church, were highly regarded among the people. Then there's this curious phrase, and no one else dared join them. I think that points basically to just a sort of awe and esteem that the general public had for the church, that they had for the believers. There's sort of a level of awe about them. It points back a little bit to where we left off last week with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which ended with the line, and great, uh, great fear seized the, all those who heard about the events taking place in the church. People can tell there's something different about this group. There's something kind of transcendent here. This is not just a casual gathering or a social club or something like that. But people can tell God is present among this group. God himself is supernaturally present in power and in glory. It's a holy thing. It's kind of, it's other. It's holy. It's transcendent. And there's a healthy respect for that among the general public. Wouldn't it be cool if people sort of saw us that way? Yet at the same time, there are also more and more new believers. It says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So that's now several times in the book of Acts that we've heard that kind of phrase, added to their number. We've heard it several times, 3,000, 5,000. Now at this point, we've just given up counting. It's too much. But more and more people are, are being touched and changed by the power of Jesus. So how do we put that together? No one else dared join them, and yet more and more were being added to their number. Those two things kind of happening at the same time. I think it just goes to show that depth in the church and numerical growth of the church go hand in hand. They're not two competing forces. Depth in the church, substance, a high bar being set, and numerical growth of the church and more and more people joining they can go totally hand in hand. They're not uh, competing interests. Oftentimes in churches, we're afraid that, you know, if we get too deep or we set the bar too high, we'll risk turning people off or offending them or, or driving them away. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, we can drive people away and offend them for a lot of stupid reasons or silly things we can say. But just having depth and substance and a high bar for our community doesn't necessarily have to drive people away. It's interesting, actually, in the first few centuries of the church, it was actually very hard to join. It was a hard thing to join the church. New members had to go through quite a process of initiation and testing to make sure they were really serious about this. And yet, the church grew like wildfire during that time, much like we see in the book of Acts. It's estimated that in the year 100, there were about 25,000 Christians in the world and by the year 300, that number was somewhere in upwards of 20 million. I don't know the math, but that's exponential growth, unlike anything maybe we've ever seen since. And yet, the church was really hard to join. 
in those days. But people joined it in droves, spread like wildfire. And yet so much church growth strategy nowadays is really aimed at trying to make things as easy and convenient and comfortable and simple for people as we possibly can in hopes that will attract a lot of people. Make it easy, comfortable, simple. But you know what? It's actually not very easy to follow Jesus. And there's a lot about following Jesus that's not comfortable and that's incredibly complicated and sometimes even inconvenient. And honestly, I think people really know that. So maybe that's why the church in the West continues to be in decline at the whole, even though we have these church growth strategies. That may be part of the reason. Because really, if you just want a nice group of people or safe place to be or tips for a better life or someone to reinforce what you already know and believe, you can find that anywhere. You don't need to come to church for that. This early church that we see in Acts, it was other. It was holy. The bar was high, and it was filled with the transcendent power of a transcendent God. People came to join it in droves because that was something they couldn't just get anywhere else. You joined that movement so that you could be transformed and connect to something other and above you and beyond you. And people did in droves. So all that to say growth and depth can go together. And I hope that our church is one that continues to grow in its depth, in in the depth of its substance, the depth of its commitment to Jesus. And at the same time, that will actually draw more and more people to Jesus. So we see more growth and more power. We've seen that all throughout Acts up to this point, and in chapter 5, it only ramps up. It only grows in its intensity, growth and power. At the same time, we also see more opposition. I think in your bulletin, or the the sermon notes, the title says, more growth, more opportunity. That's true, but that might have been a little typo on my part. It's meant to say more growth, more opposition, or continued growth, continued opposition, something like that. As the power of God continues to go forward and the church continues to grow, so too the the level of opposition continues to grow. And this is a pattern. This is a trend. It's only going to continue throughout Acts. The gospel is going to continue to spread forth into new people groups and new territories all over the, the known world. And as it happens, more and more types of opposition are going to get flared up. This pattern is, is growing and it's continuing. The apostles asked for this. They asked for more signs and wonders, for boldness. And in doing so, they, act, they knew what they were getting into because signs and wonders and boldness were the very things that got them arrested in the first place. So they knew full well the risk. Oftentimes, we like to pray for more of God's power. I mean, that, that sounds cool. God, more power, more of your power in my life, more of your power in my community, more of your power in this church. But maybe we're not so excited about some of the potential side effects some of the potential opposition that that may draw. But the apostles were fully aware of it. They knew that more power, more signs and wonders, and more boldness in speaking about Jesus was going to arouse more opposition. They asked for it anyway. And sure enough, they get that too. They get signs and wonders, and they get more opposition. So first of all, we see another arrest take place in chapter 5. In chapter 4, just Peter and John were arrested after they'd healed a lame man and began to talk about Jesus in light of that. Uh, Now all 12 of the apostles are rounded up and put in jail. So it's a little bit of a bigger deal, bigger scope. 
Uh, In chapter 4, Peter and John spent the night in jail. But these 12, they actually don't end up spending the night. There's a dramatic escape, jailbreak. An angel of the Lord opens the doors of the jail. So now this is new. We have not seen this in Acts before, and we don't see that every day. The point here is not that if you get in trouble, God will bail you out. That's not a universal blanket promise that we should take away from this passage. If you get in trouble, God will, God will get you out. That's not true. Uh, that won't be true for these apostles, actually. There is going to come a day for each of them when they don't get out. And uh, all but one of them, according to tradition, will end up giving his life as a martyr for their faith. So even for them, it's actually not true that God will always get you out of trouble. Uh, They would become martyrs and the first of many, many, many thousands throughout the ages and continuing to the present day. God does not always rescue his people from danger. Uh, And even here, the apostles, they get out for like a few hours and then they get rounded up and arrested again. So it's very short-lived. So given that they end up standing trial again anyway, like what's the point? Why, Why this angelic jailbreak? A few thoughts, though I think there's a few things we can see from that, from that incident. Uh, one is that it shows God is ultimately the one in charge. There's a lot of, of worldly ruling powers at work here exerting their authority over people. But God kind of makes a spectacle of them. He kind of embarrasses them a little bit. And again, there are parallels to Jesus here, parallels to the resurrection of Jesus. People came to the tomb. There were guards there. There was no one inside. No one knew what happened. And all the ruling authorities were baffled, and they didn't really know what to do. They didn't know what to make of it. All to show uh, God is the one ultimately in charge, even in the face of, of different powers and authorities that we might face. God is in charge. Two, we catch a glimpse here in this angelic jailbreak of the larger spiritual battle that's going on throughout Acts. Every now and then, the curtain gets rolled back for us a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of events taking place on the ground in the book of Acts, but underneath, you know, beyond it all, the kingdom of God is advancing in the world, and the kingdom of darkness is opposing it. There are real, actual spiritual forces at work here. Last week, in the passage we looked at, Pastor Tom pointed out that Satan is mentioned there for the first time in the book of Acts to kind of give us a clue into, or some insight into the spiritual nature of the opposition that the church is facing. Well, here, this is clearly a spiritual, supernatural intervention, an angel of the Lord coming and opening up the jails. That's a supernatural intervention. It's not always that obvious that there are larger supernatural forces at work in our lives and, and in the world around us. But here, again, we get a little glimpse of it. The curtains rolled back to remind us there's a larger picture and a larger story that we're a part of. And three, this rescue event, it shows God's commitment to getting the message out of the gospel out there. He doesn't break the apostles out of jail just for the fun of it, although it probably was really fun. But he gives them strict orders to get back out to the temple and start telling people about Jesus. Just to show God wants people to know about Jesus. He's committed to the message going forward, and he will find a way to get it out there. The message can't be contained. But we end up with another trial. After all that, the apostles get arrested again. They end up on trial again. In chapter 4, it was just Peter and John on trial, and again, now it's all 12 of them. And this time, they've actually broken the rules. In chapter 4, they didn't actually break any rules. They'd healed a man, and the, the ruling authorities didn't like what they were talking about. But here, uh, it says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, meaning Jesus' name. And that's true. 
The apostles were given strict orders not to teach in Jesus' name, and yet they're doing so anyway. So everyone's getting real clear about where they stand. For the Sanhedrin, it's don't talk about Jesus or you'll be punished. And for the apostles, it's we're going to talk about Jesus. In chapter 4, Peter kind of raised the question, uh, which is right, to listen to God or listen to you? Uh, You be the judge. Raises a good question. Here in chapter 5, he's not asking them, he's telling them. We must obey God rather than human beings. We're getting clear here on where everybody stands and kind of the intensity of the conflict is getting ramped up a little bit. We're going to obey God, not you. That's what he's saying. And they're not just being punks, not just rebelling for rebellious sake, but they're making a clear choice and a clear statement of whose authority ultimately they're going to follow. And it's God's authority. It's not that they don't respect the Sanhedrin's authority, but they ultimately respect God's authority more. In our situations with campus access, we're trying to figure out what that means to honor God's authority above, above anything else. And it's complicated. There are different models in Scripture for how to respond to authority. Um, so it's not totally cookie cutter. One of the staff I supervised last month was invited to give the sort of opening prayer at a commencement ceremony at a university, and he was given two rules. One, keep it under two minutes. Nobody wants anything more than that. And two... Do not use the name of Jesus. Talk about strict orders not to speak in this name. There it was. So in thinking about how to respond, he kind of he prayed about it, and he actually got the sense God was not calling him at that time and place to make a big stink and to make a stand and to say it anyway and, and cause a stir. So he abided by their wishes for the sake of our relationship with the university. Well, there's other times, though, when people in charge have asked us or maybe demanded of us that we change our leadership standards and take the faith requirements out of them. Just, just take that out, and everything will be fine. And honestly, in order to honor God and be faithful to Christ, we just can't do it. And we just won't do it. We've learned some important lessons from our history in all of this. It turns out about 100 years ago, some of the most vibrant campus ministries that existed in colleges and universities faced a similar kind of pressure. Then it was, why do you have to make such a big deal about the uniqueness of Jesus? in your doctrinal basis. I mean, can't you just back off of that a little bit? And some of the most prominent ministries on campus at that time, they did. They realized, yeah, you know, we don't have to insist on that so much. And out of that, there were some groups of students who who actually didn't want to do that, who couldn't compromise on that core belief and, and insisted on the uniqueness of Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. And out of that, actually, eventually arose the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So we've learned some of our roots this way. And as for the groups that sort of did and backed off and compromised their core beliefs, those groups actually eventually lost any spiritual power that they had on campus, and they don't even exist anymore. And we don't want to go that way. We really don't. God is the ultimate authority that we answer to. And we know that we can't compromise our core message and beliefs. Even though it might make things easier in the short run, In the long run, it will also compromise any spiritual power that God has given us to offer students. God is our ultimate authority that we answer to. And you see the apostles making a stand for that here. We must obey God rather than human beings. And speaking of the core message, here's our third theme that we see uh, repeated in Acts chapter 5. And that is of gospel and response. The gospel continuing to be proclaimed and people responding to it in various ways. 
In verses 30 to 32, we have kind of a paraphrase of what Peter has already said elsewhere at length. He's given some long sermons in some of the previous chapters where he outlines the gospel message. And here we have a real, like, concise summary of the core elements of that message. We have kind of the fulfillment of God's long-term plan being fulfilled in Jesus. We see the death of Jesus, the centrality of his death, the resurrection of Jesus, repentance and forgiveness, the Holy Spirit testifying to Jesus. All those things have been expounded upon at length by Peter other places. And here, again, he, he says it. His core message is right here. He doesn't change it under the face of pressure. In fact, he sees this chant, the standing before the rulers as an opportunity, another opportunity to share the gospel. How exciting. Um, frankly, our campus access controversies has, have given us a lot of opportunities to talk about our faith in ways that we, we actually may have asked for already, you know, like talking about it before the student government, talking about it with, with leaders and administrators on campus, talking about it in the campus newspaper and other pu- public forums. We may have actually asked for that before and wanting to have an impact on campus. We didn't ask for this method or these circumstances to allow us to do it, but I guess God knows better than we do. So Peter sees this as an opportunity, and he proclaims again the same message, the same message he's been proclaiming to crowds. Everywhere he goes, he proclaims here. And that message has always generated some kind of a response. And we've seen various responses throughout the book of Acts. We've seen some people kind of snicker and mock them. We've seen thousands upon thousands of people respond favorably with joy and give their lives to Jesus, have their lives transformed by this message. Thousands. And we've seen some folks like the Sanhedrin become annoyed and threatened and increasingly angry. You get all that when you share the gospel. All of the above. And it's actually the same message. It's not like they give a happy message to the crowd and a harsh message to the Sanhedrin. It's the same gospel, but different responses. That's kind of the way it goes. I remember the first bumbling attempt I made to share my faith when I was in college. I was a very, very new believer at the time. And I had a friend I'll call Jenny, and we used to have class on Mondays, and we'd have lunch together after class. And, and one Monday, Jenny telling me about her latest boy trouble, and oh man, like once again, I got my hopes up, and I really like this guy, but he totally broke my heart, and I just can't believe it. Why does this keep happening to me? I keep getting rejected. And, and I, you know, I started with, oh, I'm, oh, I'm so sorry, that stinks, you know, you deserve better than that, blah, blah, blah. And then, I don't know, I just thought, well, you know, that, that is too bad, though, and, and the bummer is you really can't rely on, on men to, to always be there. You know, they, they're bums. They let you down. Um, and partly, that's maybe why I've started to follow Jesus. I've really gotten into Jesus lately because what I've actually found is uh, he actually never leaves you. He never lets you down, and his love is always there. And if you're in a relationship with God, he'll actually never leave. You can totally trust him. He'll never abandon you. Even when you screw up, he's always there. And he, and, he, and he comes back to us. And um, that's the best I could do. I think that's the heart of the gospel is sort of in there. And then, then Jenny looks at me, her face turns stone cold. She goes, I don't believe in God, and I never will. And then she slammed her tray down on the table and ran out of the dining hall crying. And then I'm left there, and I suddenly feel the eyes of everyone in the dining hall upon me, because all they heard was the crashing tray, and they see this girl running out of the dining hall crying, and they just look at me like, what did you do to her? (laughs) Did you see that guy? I don't know what he said, but what a jerk. (laughs) 
I just wanted to like crawl under the table and, and disappear, but I just was left to clean up two trays and put them away. So an early taste for me of suffering a little bit of disgrace for the name of Jesus. Uh, and it has not been the last time that someone's responded negatively to that message that I've tried to share with them. Yet, at the same time, I've shared the exact same thing with other people who've also cried, but it's been tears of joy because it's the thing they've needed to hear. They've been longing to hear, longing to know for their whole lives, and they find new life and new hope in that very same message. And that's the way it goes if you share the gospel, if you talk about grace, if you talk about Jesus, even if you just you know, let it be known that you're a Christian, if you identify as a Christian with your lifestyle and your, your behaviors and your choices and your values, you can have, you know, same thing. You're going to get various responses. I wish there was a foolproof way to guarantee no one will re- ever react negatively. And I guess there is. That's to not share anything at all. And then no one reacts positively either. But if you actually want to see people's lives touched by Jesus, you've, you've got to take that risk. Put that message out there. You don't know how people will respond, but it will always be varied. It will always be varied. And here we see a pretty intense negative reaction in Acts 5. This is an intensified reaction. We haven't seen this yet. They were furious and wanted to put them to death. That's taken it up a notch. And then further down in verse 40, we see physical violence for the first time in Acts. It won't be the last time either. The apostles were flogged, which means whipped with a cord, a rod, or a leather strap up to 39 times. You know, they're so joyful afterwards, it's easy to overlook the fact that this really hurt. This is an incredibly painful punishment, a form of torture. It's violent. So the level of intensity of the, of the opposition is continuing to rise, and it will only continue to do so. We might have seen our first martyrs here, in fact, if it weren't for some timely intervention. We'll eventually see our first martyrs, but not here. The council wanted to put these guys to death. They were ready to do it. And then one of their own steps up and brings some order to the situation, Gamaliel. He's an interesting guy. He's an unlikely advocate for the apostles. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we learn Gamaliel was actually uh, a mentor and a tutor for the apostle Paul. And when we first meet Paul, he's actually someone who's trying to destroy the church. Gamaliel doesn't have any great love for the church, and he doesn't really agree with their message, but he offers a voice of reason. Hey guys, just calm down. I've seen this kind of thing before. It's gone away, so you know, if this is not of God, it'll go away too. If it is of God, you won't be able to stop them. You could make the case that this is every bit as miraculous a rescue as the angel breaking them out of jail. It's not as obvious. We don't have an angel of the Lord uh, stepping in and doing something crazy. But really, for, some, for a member of the opposition to step up and advocate in front of an angry council on behalf of these guys that he doesn't even agree with, that's pretty miraculous. That's really an act of God, I think, delivering the apostles from this situation. On campus, when controversies have come up, we've, uh, we've seen a lot of Gamaliels come to our defense. People who've said, you know, I, I really don't agree with you. I don't like what you believe, and I probably never will. But you need to be here. You need to have a right to be here, and I'll defend your right to be here, and we'll try to make some kind of compromise. Honestly, we see that as God intervening on our behalf. 
And I believe God's intervening on the apostles' behalf here. He's working through Gamaliel. He also works through Gamaliel in that I think Gamaliel's statement is, is actually a prophetic statement. If this is of God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will not be able to stop them. That's a prophetic statement. That's one of the key statements, actually, to summarize the whole book of Acts. This is an unstoppable movement of God that we're seeing here. An unstoppable movement. It will spread farther and wider, despite greater and more widespread opposition. It will continue to move forward. This Jesus revolution is an unstoppable movement. And it continues today. We even get the taste of it at the end of this chapter. Despite the threats, despite the violent punishment, the flogging, day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This message cannot be stopped. And their attempts to silence the apostles only embolden them even more. It's actually kind of counterproductive. It provides fuel to the movement and spreads it even more. It's worth noting that in the first three centuries of the church, Christianity was actually an illegal religion. It was illegal to be a Christian. We see the seeds of that forming here. That's the direction we're going. And yet, again, the movement spread like wildfire. The the only modern-day example where we see that kind of growth, explosive growth in the church, is in present-day China, where also Christianity is an illegal religion. A lot of people thought once the missionaries were kicked out and pastors and leaders were being arrested and tortured and killed and the church with Bibles were being burned, churches being destroyed, they thought, well, surely that'll kind of be the end of the Christian movement in China or at least put a pretty big damper on it. Quite the contrary. An underground Christian movement has been spreading through China like wildfire and estimates, hard to count, but estimates are that there are now over 100 million believers in China. Now, the point is not that persecution is inherently better and we should look for it. Freedom and protection, and they have their benefits too. I like them. But the point is, I guess I'm just saying a little opposition is not the end of the world. And it's certainly not the end of the Jesus movement. In fact, it may only fuel it. It may only be the thing that God uses to spread the gospel. And if we're committed and passionate about Jesus above all else, that should actually be pretty exciting. We see some excitement in these apostles. I'm challenged by them, actually. They're filled with joy. They rejoice after all this. I'm challenged, man, because in the face of campus access, I've had a lot of different reactions. I've been bummed. I've felt self-pity. I've moped. I've been anxious. I've been resigned. I've been angry. But look at these guys. They rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. This, actually, this draws them closer to Jesus. They identify more with the Jesus whom they love more than anything else. And so this is a, an invitation to joy. If our church is going to grow and experience the power of God and see God's power reach out and touch this city, that'll be exciting. Almost certainly it will also bring about some opposition. But a little marginalization, a little snickering, a little risk, a little anxiety, a little people not getting you, 
That's not an invitation to a pity party. That's an invitation to joy. An invitation to know Jesus much more deeply and to identify with him much more closely. I would be so bold as to pray for that kind of power in our church. I want to close with just some things that actually Peter said. Peter, the one kind of at the heart of this story. Years later, he was writing to a church that was facing persecution, facing opposition, facing hard times, wrestling with what to make of it. In the letter of uh, 1 Peter, chapter 4, you can tell that God has totally formed Peter through this experience. And he first says to these believers who are suffering, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You haven't done anything wrong. It's not weird. It's not a problem that you're suffering, that you're being opposed. It's not strange. That's a lot of the DNA of how the church grows. And he says this to them, and I'd love for us to read this together. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Praise God that we bear the name of Jesus. I'd love to pray that he unleashes power in and through our church, whatever may come, and then we'll close with one more song. Father, I thank you for the book of Acts. I thank you for that which we have here to study and learn from. I thank you for how you've been at work in the church for centuries. And I thank you that Gamaliel was right. This has been an unstoppable movement. And we have benefited from the apostles being so bold as to proclaim your name. We're part of the fruit of that. Thank you that the Christ revolution is unstoppable, even in the face of opposition. And Lord, we pray that as a church, you would um, impress on us the things from here that are of you, that you want us to take hold of, and only those things, nothing else, Lord, only what's, what you're calling us to at this time. But I thank you for how you're forming us through the study of the book of Acts. You're preparing us to be your church here in the city of Worcester. We don't know all of what that means and what that looks like, but we do know that you are present, that we could share in, in your name, share in your sufferings, and share in your glory. So we just ask for that, God, and we avail ourselves to be the church you're calling us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.